Last week began with the news that the Federal Reserve sees commercial real estate debt as a systemic risk to the broader financial system. That view, laid out in the Fed's twice-yearly financial stability report, comes down to concerns that loans on commercial properties will not be able to be refinanced in this new environment of heightened risk. I'm Miriam Hall. My guest on BizNow Reports today is Manus Clancy, a Senior Managing Director at TREP LLC. We're talking about whether the so-called extend and pretend environment is really coming to a close, considering one of the biggest loan maturities this year just got extended in New York. He's also speaking on the debt ceiling as well as impacts of the banking crisis on lending. First, though, I asked him what he made of the Fed's comments as someone who was constantly evaluating real estate debt. Well, there's a lot to peel back with that question. Commercial real estate is a very big holding among banks. It is always a source of concern for regulators. Banks just really lean in on commercial real estate as a source of funding. So after the great financial crisis, it was a big deal during the Dodd-Frank stress testing era, um, the severely adverse case that banks had to stress their portfolios with included a 40% haircut in commercial real estate values. So the fact that the regulators look at this is not really that big a surprise, but we are in a situation right now, particularly with office, that it's unclear where values are going And in the broader commercial real estate market, certainly values are down 15, 20, 25 percent since 2022. So when you put that all together, I think it's appropriate for the Fed to come out and say, we're looking at this very carefully. You know, when you say 15 to 20 percent, that really does sound like a startling number when you say it out loud. Is it surprising to you? Yes and no. On the one hand, we've seen such an increase in interest rates since 2022. When LIBOR, or now SOFR, were 25 basis points and the 10-year Treasury was 1.5%, you were really talking about borrowers being able to tap the commercial real estate market with rates in the 3% range, 3 to 4%. And now when you're talking about new loans being made at 5 or 6 or 7%, it goes hand in hand with cap rates being forced higher and certainly values being lower. So... What you're seeing now is even in the best performing asset classes like industrial and in multifamily, values are down there just by the fact that interest rates are higher. It's not really a reflection of poor performance. But in other property types like office, it's a combination of those higher rates and performance concerns. When I I spoke to Scott Reckler a few months ago, he described it as a regime change uh, with these new interest rates. It is. Um, For the last 10 years, borrowers have been very accustomed to when they have to refinance their loan, not just getting new financing, but getting it at a lower rate and getting cash back, that the value has gone up so much that they would get a check at closing that represented a big increase in value that they had seen over the prior decade. What you're looking at now is potentially, or not even potentially, in fact happening borrowers having to do cash in refinancings to get enough debt to refinance their property they have to write a check now to make or to close the gap between what the bank will lend and what they need to refinance their loan so when he says regime change i think he's absolutely right this week we did see news a reported news that the biggest cmbs loan that was due this year has been extended we've been told that that 
you know, extend and pretend environment is coming to a close. But what did you make? What do you make on the environment? Is that particular loan, that nearly a billion dollar loan on one of RFR's properties on Parker Avenue, um, did you see that as an outlier because it's so big? I think with that, there's a lot of layers to the onion to peel back as well. I think that you could look at this in many ways. On the one hand, all momentum was heading in favor of this particular property. They had rebuilt their rent roll. They had grown occupancy from under 70% to back above 90%. I think last year they had added about 400,000 square feet of new leases. It is a trophy office in New York. So on the glass half empty side, you say to yourself, if somebody like that can't get refinancing, the problems much must be bigger than we even previously thought. So if your tendency is to think of the glass half empty, that's where you are. On the glass half full side of it, we've seen Brookfield and Blackstone and others give back properties already, or at least hint that they're going to give back properties in Los Angeles, San Francisco, New York, and so forth. And the fact that RFR wants to keep this thing and negotiate an extension is a positive sign, right? They are not they are still seeing equity value here. They want to hold on to the property and they worked with a special servicer to do so. It's the one great unknown in office compared to shopping malls, um, how much the borrower will fight to keep these properties. It's still so early in the process. We just don't know the answer yet. Do you swing more half empty glass um, when you're assessing that loan? Do you think it says... Uh, something negative about the environment generally that they couldn't score a ref- refinancing? And, and we don't know that, but let's assume they, they got an extension because they couldn't get a refinancing. Well, I, I tend to look at the glass as half full in life in general. So I am glad that they got this extension. I'm glad that they were able to uh, negotiate something which kept that low rate in place and they have another year to work things out. They can wait for more favorable time now to... Uh, tap the capital markets, which is terrific. The fact that they want to hold on to the property is a very good sign. Uh, So I like that. But you have to admit that for properties where the momentum has not been nearly as positive or or the property is not itself as desirable a location or a, um, a name, you have to think that the struggles will have far reaching implications. Yeah, and just like that property that they spent like $25 million doing a new amenity space. And I was reading they, they got something like 14 premium leases there in 2021. They've had a really good leasing. So as you say, it is a, it is a trophy asset on Park Avenue. <laughs> I do think that this is going to work out fine. I think that someday interest rates will be lower. The office market will heal. Class A properties like this is will outperform class B and class C. And there will be a silver lining for this asset down the road. I don't think that that will happen for all assets um, and not all even trophy or class A assets. As we mentioned a moment ago, San Francisco and Los Angeles have already seen issues with properties that were once considered, you know, cream of the crop. And I think that there will be stories of offices being sold for deep discounts that people could not fathom five years ago. 
The second biggest loan maturing this year is 300 Park Avenue. It's a Tishman Spire building. They voluntarily put that into special servicing uh, last month. The building has been valued uh, at a billion dollars, and that was a decade ago. So would you say that it's worth 20% less now, do you think? Oh, certainly. I would certainly say that. That particular building, um, they had the issue, too, that their biggest tenant was Colgate Palmolive years ago, and Colgate... I think they either have no space there or just very, very fractional space in that building at this point. So unlike 375, for which all the momentum has been positive, this story remains to be written. Can they get tenants to backfill that space? Can they get tenants paying premium rents on Park Avenue? Can they get long-dated leases? How much do they have to pay to retenant the space? So this is one we'll watch carefully in... 2023 and 2024. This is a, a a period which is not unlike the mall space five years ago. Uh, in, in many ways, I think the outcomes will be very similar. B and C class properties will underperform the class A. The level of default will be significant. There'll be properties that are valued at half today at what they were 10 years ago. Uh, losses will be felt not only in the equity side, but on the debt side. And the one part of the equation that has yet to be really told yet is in 2018 to 2022, mall owners really dug in and fought to keep their properties. They worked very hard to maintain those assets, uh, even when there was negative equity. We don't know what the behavior of the office owner will be yet. That, That part of the story remains very fluid. So we don't know if they're going to dig in and fight or they're just going to say, take it, take the asset. That's really it. That's really it. And um, the early indications thus far with the properties in Los Angeles and so forth, um, the Columbia Property Trust portfolio, things like that, the fact that the indications are that these are going back to the lenders is not an early start to the cycle. We have to certainly couch that remark in the fact that these are markets that are um, somewhat distressed, like a lot of sublease space available, not a lot of demand, heavily dependent on tech, which has been a net giver back of space recently, not a taker of space. So what you're seeing in those cities may not be representative of what you see across the U.S., but it is a worrisome start. So would you say that this maturity on the Tishman Spire building, 300 Park, is more indicative? What happens there would be more indicative of where the market's going than this reported um, extension on the RFR property? Well, I think the details that come out in the next couple of months will be very telling. If this transfer is because the owners say, we see no equity value in this and we want to hand the keys back consensually um, without... a a judicial foreclosure, that would be a very disappointing turn. If this is, we're willing to put in $20 million in return for another 30 months extension and some other accommodations, that would be a very positive turn. It means that they see the ability to grow value in the future. So until we start seeing a dozen or two dozen of these outcomes, it'll be hard to really say that there's a trend. We're very eager to see what borrowers do. And, uh, you know, I say we're very much on the fence as to how this turns out. 
The other big interesting um, loan recently was the um, $500 million loan on 919 3rd Avenue, the SL Green building. I did read that it was very hard to get that, that deal across the line. Do you think that says much about the market? Or again, is that just another piece of the puzzle that we're trying to watch for? Well, in 2008 to 2010, financing was almost completely unavailable, even for trophy assets. The market was shut down. We at Trep call it the the ice age. We went 21 months without a, a CMBS deal being issued and banks were failing. So certainly they were not uh, active participants in making capital available. So, you know, if you're considering the benchmark being 2008 to 2010, we're in a slightly better space right now. We are seeing some refinancings of offices. We are seeing some CMBS activity, even some shopping malls have been refinanced. Just this week, we saw the Cumberland Mall in Atlanta get refinanced. So the activity isn't zero, which is a positive sign. And the fact that they were able to get 919 over the finish line is certainly helpful. So we're comparing it to the Ice Age and it's looking better. Right. We're not glacial at this point. Maybe (laughs) you can come up with a metaphor that is uh, comparable to slightly less than glacial at this point. But to be sure, it's not glacial for multifamily, industrial, um, retail that is not uh, shopping malls. It is, the market is slower for sure, but it is moving, right? There is activity there. You'll see every week there are some apartment complexes selling. There are uh, shopping centers selling. There are refinancings taking place. So the market is, is operating. It's just not operating very quickly and price discovery remains a very big part of that slowdown. Last week, we saw First Citizens, which bought SVB, um, saying it's no longer originating office loans. Uh, the CFO said that on its earnings call. I mean, First Republic and Signature Bank have also gone from the market. I mean, how much do you think this absence of these lenders is going to impact um, the holders of record levels of debt maturing this year? I think it's a big problem, and I think it's not limited to the banks. I think the biggest issue right now, and you're right to point this out, as we watch the earnings calls come out and you have CNBC on in the background every day, we haven't heard CEOs or CFOs talk about office debt in a decade, and now that's all they could talk about, how much they have and how it's performing. So you're spot on there. I think the biggest issues to watch right now are, number one, that because of this deposit run issue, Everybody is so laser focused on liquidity and keeping their deposit numbers um, reasonable and as high as possible. They are not putting out money nearly as quickly as they were. Because banks make up such a big part of the commercial lending footprint, that means that lending is constrained from banks. That's point number one. Point number two is the shadow banking industry, the PE funds, the hedge funds they rely often on bank funding as their pipeline or their lifeline for financing. And if banks don't want to finance PE and hedge fund warehouses, then what you have is a situation where they too, the PE and hedge funds become constrained. So now you have two of the four big suppliers of debt pulling back the reins. The CMBS market, as you know, has been somewhat slow. It's not zero, but issuance has has fallen off considerably year over year. And so what that leaves is the insurance companies to fill the gap. 
And I'm not sure the insurance companies want to be the lender of last resorts for things that are not trophy assets, that are the local, secondary, and tertiary shopping center, office, hotel, right? That's not their domain. And so when you add that all up, I think finding capital in this market will be difficult. You know, a lot has been made of that $16 billion, um, in CMBS maturities this year in New York on offers, but nearly 30% of the loans on multifamily uh, are set to mature in the next 24 months. I think it's a total of $9.9 billion that are at risk too, according to your analysis. How soon do you think we could see distress in that part of the market? And, and do you think the distress is going to look different to, to, to office and retail and hotel distress as much as we've seen distress? I think distress in the multifamily space will be uh, episodic. It will be limited by two things. I think um, the first area of distress will be in markets where the quality of life uh, issues have been prominent. We've seen some distress already in San Francisco and in New York's outer boroughs. So that's certainly something we could see more of in cities for which quality of life is, is a problem. Uh, I also think that borrowers that were expecting to use floating rate debt to value add on transitional properties, moving something from a class C to a class B or a B to an A minus, uh, and were expecting to up rents by 8 or 10 or 12%, uh, I think that they will be squeezed. I think that we'll see some distress there. The combination of the higher borrowing costs the higher labor and uh, construction costs combined with lower demand will lead to some distress there. But I don't think it will be the kind of thing where we look back and say, wow, this was a really problematic period for, for multifamily. I think the biggest story will be buyer's remorse, which will be, wow, we really bought this at a terrible time. Cap rates were 3%, um, interest rates were 3%. We were expecting um, Uber rent growth for the next 10 years, and all of three of those things turned out to be not true, and we paid 20% more for this than we wanted to. I think that that will not lead to default. It'll just lead to, um, on the case of the owners, some remor- or some uh, regret. The biggest political news at the moment is obviously the debt ceiling crisis. Uh, what sort of potential impacts to real estate could there be if the U.S. does default? Well, what you've seen in the past is incredible spikes in volatility um, during time frames before and after debt ceiling issues are resolved. So several things on that particular topic. The closer we get to the debt ceiling, the more volatility we're likely to see both in the equity markets and the treasury markets, and of course, the capital markets. And when you see high volatility, what you see is lenders pulling back, uh, particularly CMBS lenders. CMBS lenders thrive on a stable market. They expect to make loans, warehouse loans, and securitize them. And while they're warehousing those loans, they need to hedge. And for them to hedge effectively, they need volatility-free markets. When volatility spikes, they don't have that. And that's true also of bank lenders. They don't want to lend in a volatile 
um, time. So I think that you'll see lenders pull back as we get closer to this. Uh, if we really get up to the 11th hour and there's no deal, I think that you will see um, volatility spike and the equity markets sell off. And should we cross that Rubicon and see a default, there's really no telling how haywire the markets get, right? It's it's like one of those B-movies where, right, the Ghostbusters, we, we cross the, uh, the lasers. Nobody's ever done that before, and you're not sure where that takes you. Um, I, I tend to think that um, sometimes the fear gets the best of us, um, and, and that will lead to higher volatility. But until we cross that line where um, Speaker McCarthy walks away or President Biden walks away and we let this happen— we really don't know what's on the other side. It's hard to imagine that happening. I mean, surely, surely well, not. How many times have you said surely not in the last three and a half years? Though? Well, it's a funny thing that you try to come up with a comparable. And the comparable for me was probably the Brexit vote. And you look at that and the fear was so much bigger than the reaction after the fear, right? The fear that the Brexit vote would go in favor of the UK leaving was so heightened and volatility was so high, yet after the vote, volatility retraced. Okay, the world didn't end. And so when I say that we just don't know, it's it's really an earnest opinion that it could be one of those things that you cross over and yes, there's um, default and yes, there has to be money changing hands on swaps and certain things are taking place, but you learn that hmm, okay, this happened and the world is still surviving. Or it could be the kind of thing where, you know, stocks drop 55%, right? You just don't know until it happens. For me, I'm one that I don't want to know. I'd prefer not to find out, but um, it doesn't seem like our leaders are uh, as concerned as I am. So you don't feel like we're any closer to some sort of certainty? Because, you know, after First Republic crashed, um you know, people are talking about, oh, the, this, the, you know, it's the next shoe to drop commercial real estate. What you're describing is not a, a calming of the markets or a calming of the environment. You're talking about things becoming even more volatile. Well, I certainly feel like more volatility will take place in the next three weeks. Until we have debt ceiling certainty, that will definitely be the case. I was more sanguine in late April, I have to say. I thought that the worst was behind us. And my thought process was like this, that during SVB, every CFO in the world who had uninsured deposits was saying, we have to distribute these deposits across hundreds of banks. We need to pull out of banks. I thought that pullout would lead to a domino effect for sure. We then went three or four weeks without that happening. And I was of the belief that if it hasn't happened by now, if the CFO hasn't triggered a deposit collapse at this point, if you haven't pulled your money out by now, chances are you won't, right? That it's something that you're not going to do. And then all of a sudden, First Republic comes out and says, we have seen a 40% dip. And that becomes the narrative. And now we're all watching West and Western Alliance. So you have to say at this point that more deposit runs are not out of the question. Now, certainly that could be resolved in a 15-minute announcement by regulators saying we are going to up deposit insurance to $5 million, right? That would change the narrative in a heartbeat. 
but there doesn't seem to be any political appetite for that right now. Um, but if it were to happen, yes, I think we'd all be uh, relieved. Not, I'm not saying that that should happen, but certainly that would change the dynamic in a heartbeat. It's true. After after the First Republic rescue announcement, I kind of thought that this was all you know behind us and we could move on to new stories. It doesn't look like it. Well, I was with several bankers this week, and these are bankers that normally do not think about liquidity and do not think about deposit ratios and so forth at all. They are people that are monitoring their portfolios. They're looking for distress. They're new. They're looking for new lending opportunities. They're onboarding new loans, right? They're doing business every single day. And the only topic on anybody's lips this week was deposits, deposits, deposits. That is what is driving our behavior. And it was something really startling to hear. You never would have heard this word at any point, I don't think in the last five decades. I don't think this has ever been a topic for the financial markets. And now you have people that are knee deep in the CRE markets that are not conducting business as usual. All they're doing is trying to figure out what is happening next and how much liquidity do we have. So not a, we're not moving into a calm summer then. Is that is that fair to say? Well, it could be calmer if if Speaker McCarthy and President Biden get together and, and cut a deal. Certainly, I think there would be a big exhale. And if we went 30 days without another uh, First Republic, that would certainly help. But I do think that it will be offset with a lot of negative headlines on office defaults, and that will have to keep people on their toes. Something I heard you say recently on the TREP podcast, which I thought was very interesting, was that the defaults, um, the delinquency rather, on, uh, on office is still under 3%, um, but the risk is much higher. How, uh, how quickly could that translate into a problem? Well, it is under 3% still, but it is up almost 100 basis points since the beginning of the year. So it has been, it has been a very sharp move. The thing about offices, it, it's not unlike um, the retail space from five years ago. The leases are so long, the leases are 10 years often in length, and they have staggered renewals, right? If you have an office space that is separated with five tenants that make up 20% each, chances are those tenants will be staggered in terms of their lease expirations. So unless you are hit with a loan that's maturing, or unless you're hit with leases coming due that take your occupancy from 95% to 60%, chances are you're going to continue paying your loan until one of those things happen. So, and that was true of the malls too, that even though everybody was worried about Sears and JCPenney and others, as long as they were paying their leases and the leases were not expiring, the loan was good. And so that took a long time to play out. And I think that um, everybody's concerned about offices, but it will take a very long time for this to really um, fully extend out. I think what we'll see is five or 10 or 20 loans every month that are moved to special servicing or miss their balloon date or become 30 days delinquent. But we won't see something where 100 loans in a given month or 200 loans will hit that. It's just uh, the nature of the leases that prevent that from happening. So a slow, slow burn, but still a burn, not in a good way. Absolutely. That's right. Uh, Manus, thank you so much for doing this. It was my pleasure being here. That's Manus Clancy, the Senior Managing Director at TREP. Now, TREP has a podcast too. It's called TREP Wire. 
covering many of the subjects that Manus and I just talked about. So if you like this podcast, you'll like that one too. There's a link to it in the show notes. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.